Hello and welcome to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. And in this episode, we're focusing on Slovakia, a small country in the middle of Eastern Europe, the junior and less well-known partner in the former Republic of Czechoslovakia. Also a geographical pivot point, which has been through its history, surrounded by more powerful neighbors, the Kingdom of Hungary to the south, Poland to the north, Russians and Ukrainians to the east, and though Slovakia has been influenced by many of these, it also has its own particular traditions and history. Jenny, or Jenny, grew up in the eastern corner of Slovakia from a Hungarian family but learned to speak Slovak and Russian, as well as her native language. As a child in World War II and growing up in the post-war Socialist Republic of Czechoslovakia, she experienced a period of historic change and dramatic events in the country, culminating in what's known as the Prague Spring of 68-69, which led to Soviet tanks rumbling into her hometown of Košice. This was the trigger for Jenny and her family, like many in the country at the time, to take the fateful decision to try and escape to Vienna, Austria, and see if they could gain asylum in Australia. I hope you will join me in listening to this evocative personal perspective on this era of history for which there are ever fewer witnesses, and to understand what it was like for an Eastern European migrant arriving in 1970s Hobart. So I'm Jenny Williams. I'm coming from that part of the world which has been has, has had very dramatic and exciting experiences. I am from that part of Slovakia which borders with Hungary. The city I'm coming from used to be part of the monarchy. In 1918 became part of First Czechoslovakian Republic Republic. In 19 36 it became back to Hungary during the German occupation up to 1945 and then we were liberated by the Russians. So we became Czechoslovakia again, second Czechoslovakia. So my family is of Hungarian origin. The native language I have learned was Hungarian and when we became Czechoslovakian I was schooled in Czechoslovakia with Slovak language and Russian and I use those languages frequently. I happen to be the first generation of socialists, youth, and I had no bad feelings about the Russian occupation, despite the fact that my grandparents who were in business, their business was nationalized and uh, they had bad feelings about the socialist regime. But I have benefited with a very good education and uh, lots of activities, sport and culture activities, which were for free for us. And uh, so I had a very good childhood and very good teenage years, really. The problem started, really it wasn't a problem. I got married, I had two children, I took my husband to join the Communist Party because I thought it was a good thing to do. And uh, I was working just before we left the country. I was working in the social department and I was the secretary to Invalid Committee, which would be the equivalent here of the my birthday. Well, Invalid Committee it was. And my role was to look into the files and the lives of 
all the clients who came and apply for the invalid pension. Mm -hmm. So I have learned a lot about people, had a very good relationship, and I was working in that position for 10 years, and I loved it. uh, uh, Things have changed in 1968. 21st of August, when we were occupied, our country was occupied by Russian, by USSR and the Warsaw Pact Army. That was to do with the Prague Spring? It was was about the Dubček and Prague Spring. It uh, it was preceded with a very dramatic and exhilarating dice where we thought that there is kind of freedom which we never really experienced. But I do understand now why... We were occupied by the USSR because we were part of the China, which was not only a political China, but it was also the whole economic China. And we were, Czechoslovakia was right in the middle of it because Czechoslovakia is surrounded by Poland, by Ukraine, by Hungary, by Austria and Germany. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were very pivotal country to sort of being in in there. We didn't know what was happening when we were occupied. It was a die when the aeroplanes kept circling around us and we had no idea what, what was happening. And the next day, my mom went to work and she phoned me back and she said, do you know that the whole city is full of Russian tanks? And this is how I find out that we were occupied. Turn on the television and we find out then about the Prague and all all the dramatic things which has happened. But prior to that, on the morning at 4 o'clock, the phone rang in our place and uh, my husband's cousin was working as a dispatch guy in uh, somewhere, some kind of car company, autobus or something company. And he said... I don't know what is happening, but the tanks are pouring in through the east from Russia mm-hmm. to Košice. So we thought that there was something, and we knew about Prague Spring. Anyway, when we find out all about this, it was, uh, it was very dramatic because there was some shooting in the city. I uh, didn't go to work for about a week and I was trying to find out where I will hide with the children. But to the end, I went back to work and because of the place, it was like a city council, my workplace. It was surrounded by tanks with all the Russian soldiers sitting in the turrets playing harmonica and... uh, People from the office went down to them, and because we were taught Russian, kind of, basically, we could communicate with them. They thought that they were in West Germany, that mm. they were uh, suppressing an uprising, which didn't happen, but I'm not talking about places like Prague and that, because they had a different experience. But this mm-hmm. is my experience, and I'm saying it as it happened to me. Anyway... They were uh, sitting in uh, tanks in front of the radio station and hospital and all the sort of um, pivotal places in the city. And so far it was not too bad. But as I was talking to people I knew, they, there was always less and less of them 
in the city and they were escaping because some of the borders were very porous at that time. They, they didn't clamp down just yet. Anyway, we decided that we'll see what, what happens, but then uh, our uh, the, uh, boss of my, and the person who was in charge of our department arrested. He was uh, in his office with two Russian soldiers at his door and all that. It was starting to get very threatening and uh, the people uh, were told not to go to the streets and uh, the Russian tanks going around. So I have here a uh, little write-up about how, how it went. It was too much. In the second half of 1968 and the first of 1969, the sharp edge of circumstances were turning in my sinews and bones, wanting to tear out my heart so it remembers nothing of the painful and heart-wrenching memories. Those memories which started at the night when tanks for four abreast were rolling through the dark streets which shut down turrets and guns pointed to the sky like remote control toys with a deep and constant noise that echoed in the asphalted streets when they were being torn open like can of sardines between the four, six or twelve-story flats. I'm Yeni and it was I who thought it all out. No future for us and our children in this country after the occupation by USSR. No prospect of keeping our jobs, no university studies for children, no security. Only tanks with Russian soldiers sitting in turrets with their katyushkas at the ready. There were seven of us, four adults and three children. My mother, whom we called mommy, Chepi, my sister, six years my junior, and her one-year-old son, Roman, my husband, Diano, myself, and our two children, Istvan and Zhuzhi. All together, in February 1969, we escaped illegally from the country behind the Iron Curtains, then called Czechoslovakia. Before our departure, we read the pamphlets about Australian way of life, which we were sent by a friend who had already escaped, and he got them from Australian embassy in Vienna. We compared the minimum wages, the housing, the schooling, the prices, and the freedom. We were well informed, even worked out after all our weekly shopping of grocery and adding some small luxuries, we still would have $5 saved from our minimum wages. Five whole dollars. What a country, I thought. We thought about it all and about the luxury of vast possibilities. The decision of emigrate is a complex issue. Emotional, political, financial and moral questions had to be considered. And they were, what will be the moral and financial consequences for my mother to leave her job as a legal advisor to a large wholesale firm? for my sister to leave her teaching position and for me to give up my position of secretary to the invalid committee, and for my husband, who had 150 people working under him. All right, all right, I argued. I know there will be insecurities, unknown problems, and problems with the language, but the hardest part surely had to be to get over the borders. Once we are safe in a free country, this will be good. A little hardship for a short while, that's all. 
we are all healthy, well-meaning and hard-working people. That belief and my capability to voice my opinion with a self-confidence and assuredness helped. They all listened and believed in the picture I painted about our bright future. One cold winter morning, when the snow was heavily vying down the bare branches of trees and the streets looked like enchanted fairy tale, we turned the key in the door of our flat on the second floor in the block of flats and carried the three suitcases which from then on represented all our belonging to a railway station where we caught the train to Vienna. I might never see this city again. I might never feel the familiarity of the cramped bus, the exchange of smiles, the murmur of conversation mingled with humming of the engine. The thought left me cool and indifferent. It doesn't matter. It's in the past already. I don't belong to this crowd anymore. I look, uh, look on the white streets with my eyes, but my mind is excited about tomorrow and the dice after tomorrow. Somewhere, it's all between my eyes and my brain. I don't give my heart a chance to express its feelings, and I make a conscious effort not to be sentimental. It's unforgettable, and there are no words to express those feelings. My grandma walks me out to the front gate, the familiar dress, the familiar pinned-up white hair and the familiar brown eyes, now full of sorrow. Look after the children, Yeni. Look, Yeni is my native name. Look after them well. She grips my arm. I feel her warm, wet cheek against mine. The very last touch and the very last memory of my grandmother makes me sad. <laughs> On the train at the Hungarian and Slovak border crossing. The brakes screech. I have crossed this border many times, but never so nervously as to die. Naively, we think that to cross this border will be the hardest part of the whole emigration. If we appear suspicious, they could return us to Czechoslovakia. We keep looking through the window, the flat ground is covered with snow. Two men, one in Hungarian blue-gray, the other in Slovak khaki checks the passport. This is all they do. They are impersonal and polite. The passports are in order. How much money are we taking with us, they inquire. Just what is written in the passport declaration, I say. The Hungarian presses a rubber stamp on the page 12 of each passport, touches his head, and they both leave. Through the window, we see men in uniform with guns hanging from their shoulders and sniffer dogs at their heels walking on the platform. A group of four men enters the carriage. All suitcases and bags down from the overhead net, please. Our heads stretch and struggle with their weight as we lower them onto the seat. Open them, please. They move their hands among the contents of our cases and stick their arms deep into our bags. So, where are we going with children? Just visiting an aunt in Vienna, I say. Mmm, they sigh. The children are stuck to me on one side, on each side, and I'm sweating. Chirpy, my sister, stands in the middle of the compartment holding Roman on her arms. Roman behaves in exemplar, exemplary manner. Two of the men step back, keeping the door open. The other, the other two kneel on the floor, looking under seats with torches. I feel threatened. 
We don't dare to talk. Is it over or is there more? After 30 minutes, the train is still not moving. There is a sudden traffic in front of our window. More soldiers go on the train. Did they find something? Another 30 minutes. Soldiers are walking about in front of our compartment. Did they get someone off the train? We are still not talking. The, the train starts moving. My hand slides into the pocket of my skirt, searching for my handkerchief. I wipe the purse of sweat about my lip and exchange a smile with my sister. I falsified most of my documents, and okay. this is why I was so very, very nervous. Because, um, yeah, this is how I got the, the passports anyway, and for all seven of us. We arrived to Vienna and we thought that we perhaps would like to go somewhere else, not to Australia, but to my way to Canada or to America. Well, the people in the hotel advised not to go to American embassy because it's a very long process. People were waiting there for years, really, to get the sort of entry thing. Mm. But the charity, which was provided by the Christian charity, there was a lady who was living in the hotel. They got hold of some forms from the Canadian embassy to fill up and apply for asylum. And that lady was selling it in the hotel, and our last money... <laughs> would have gone there if we, if she would have got it, if she would have had enough of those forms. But when she left for Canada, we find out that they were all expired and the Canadian embassy said that whoever came with those falsified sort of documents, they can't ever go to Canada. All right. and, and she had the money. Anyway, we arrived to Australia and uh, after we did, it was incredible. Our impressions were so varied and so incredible. It was exciting because it was a new new country and a new new environment. And was Hobart the first place you came to in Australia? Yes, we finished yeah. up in Hobart. Uh, we were going to go to Bonagila, but uh, because uh, my mother and sister were assigned to Tasmania, I they decided it. I don't know how they decided it, but it happened on the aeroplane. And uh, the guy spoke German, and my mom spoke German, and she kept saying, family, family, together, together. <laughs> So we finished up in Tasmania then, and we had uncle here who also okay. helped us to settle first. So this is what happened. They were dramatic days. When we came first to uh, Australia, we were looking for a job, and in early 1970s, it wasn't hard. There were, yeah. You really walked into any job you you know, we were capable of doing. But because I didn't speak English, I didn't have much hope. Uh, someone told us to go to Cadbury's, that they hire people, so I did. We did, really. We, we always went in packs, you know, my husband, my mother, my, my sister, because yeah. we were hoping that one of us will be employed anyway. So my husband got the first, the first die when he applied. He got a job in silk and textile. And um, my mother was looking after the children, and uh, I went to Cadbury's and uh, heighted it, absolutely heighted it. And I find out 
they told me to go to to public place to work to learn the language and as it happened they spoke all russian they were all russian and <laughs> polish emigrants so my russian improved fantastically <laughs> no english eventually i finished up with a hungarian guy who started to introduce yogurt in hobart and no not many people knew about yogurt he had a little mm. yogurt factory down in uh, lena valley next to the milk factory and so I started half past four on the morning, and uh, we didn't have a car, so he would pick me up at half past four from where we lived, and I finished at five o'clock. But it was good, because we act Hungarian, all die, <laughs> and <laughs> he was very good, and every time uh, he had a chance, he packed a full box of yogurts and cheese, cottage cheese and stuff, so it helped us, the family helped. After that, oh yes, one day he came and he said, Jenny, what do you know about chemistry? I said, oh. I matriculated from chemistry. And so he lit a cigarette, he went to the laboratory of Biker's Milk and uh, came back and he said, they want you for interview. There is a place in, uh, you know, in the laboratory for laboratory assistant. So I went. I went for an interview and the guy who interviewed me couldn't speak Slovak or Hungarian or Russian and I couldn't speak English. So I was just guessing what he was asking, and my answers were yes, no, by, you know, just but what, what I was, anyway, what I was thinking that it is right, and um, came back to the my working place, which was behind the laboratory, and my boss asked, so how did you go? I said, no idea. So he lit another cigarette, went up, and he came back, and he said, you are hired. I said, you're joking. I didn't think so. Anyway, I did get hired, and I was working there for 10 years. I got my qualification as laboratory analyst, and I was basically running the, the whole show, really. And it was fabulous, the best time of my life. First three months, we couldn't speak, so we drew pictures to each other. My boss in the laboratory, he drew a picture, what he wanted me to do, and I did. And Half of the factory people who were bringing samples in from the production, they all got pencils, they drew pictures what they want, and I drew pictures back, and this is how we communicated. The people were marvelous. The people were absolutely marvelous, not resentful at all, wanting to share, wanting to introduce the Australian way of life. One of the guys from the factory, behind the factory, lit up a little barbecue thing, and he got sausages and tomatoes and all that, and turned up on the paper plate, and he said, Australian barbecue! (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful, I have... I, the best best part of my uh, settling in Australia, really, 10 years I was working there, and then I opened my own business, mm-hmm. which was uh, just as good as <laughs> this. So. so I was interested to know from that, how did you eventually uh, manage to acquire... The any, language. Yeah. I copied. I copied people the way they talk. For a long time, I didn't know what it means. People were saying, see ya. And I didn't know what it means, so I said, see ya. And then they answered, that was good. And someone explained to me later that it is see you later. I said, oh, 
I didn't know that. I was copying the language. Mm. I, I don't have any education. I haven't learned the language at school. I haven't been doing any courses. I did. To, for the first week, we were sent to a Hobart Matric for English courses, and they were all the migrants. They were Vietnamese, Chileans. There was a lot of Chileans escaping in early 70s from, from their uprising and all those uh, people and uh, we learned first die they will say everyone would say I am repeat so the class repeated I am you are and so on and so I knew those three things and the next time we turn up new migrants came so she started again I am. <laughs> you are. So this was my English education. You know, obviously coming to Australia would have been a big, was a big adjustment. Mm. What, what, were the, what did you find were the, maybe the biggest, or most noticeable cultural differences that you came across? They weren't uh, sort of such an obvious things. It's mainly when the children were growing up and they grew up in Australian culture because they mm-hmm. were schooled here. I saw them that they were more... I find interesting that the families are not uh, extended families. Yeah. I got to know a lady and she told me that her sister lives in Devonport and she hasn't seen her for years. I said, why? Yeah. And she said, oh, she, is li- she lives in Devonport. I couldn't believe it. To me, it was the family was always family. It was a very mm. important part. The independence of teenagers, I find, uh, I, I was worried about it because my son suddenly became very independent when he was 16, 17, and he would turn up at 3 o'clock on the morning, and I, I was sitting at, at the door waiting for him to get home. Mm. And when he did, I felt safe, and then, you know, I told him, but mom, everyone does it. Every, where mm. were you? We had a party. And mom, you are so old-fashioned. So, you know, this, uh, the, the big freedom of uh, the teenagers, I find. Also, I was told at school that the children were two years ahead of the curriculum of uh, Australian. Right. And I thought, well... I mean, Stephen was 12, and uh, the daughter was 9, and they were two years ahead of the curriculum. And uh, I thought, well, that's a big difference. Uh, The teacher told me, when I barely could speak English, that it would be best if we forget about our own language but talk English at home. And I thought, yeah, (laughs) how would that be done? (laughs) Uh, That's someone who doesn't really understand yeah, the re- realities yes. of um Someone told me that I should go to education department of somewhere. I can't even remember, but I know that there was a lady. I walked into the department, and she said, how old are you? I said, I'm 38. And she said, you're too old. Wow. And I thought... You kidding? <laughs> because you see, in in our country after the war, most men were in war, and mm. the women were working in offices everywhere, really, yeah. mainly women. And they were, I I was working in the office prior to the social department, 
And uh, there were people, 65, 70, you know, I didn't think much of it. They, they knew their jobs. They, they have been working in their jobs for years. And they, they went home. They took care of the family. They, they cooked. They, they did everything. <laughs> mm. So I find that little bit of pudding. I thought, yeah. yeah and then I went down the street in Hobart. And uh, there was some building going on, and someone whistled at me, and I thought, ah, oh, finally someone recognized me. I'm a person. <laughs> <laughs> no, it would be an insult, but then I, I felt so good. <laughs> so how long before you could sort of communicate in a sort of competent way, I guess, or in a way you were comfortable with? I might be three or four years after I was after I started working in Baker's Mill. They sent me to get my qualification as a laboratory analyst because I had the basic qualification for chemistry, but I haven't been taught about the milk and all that. So I was given this English book of 200 pages to learn. And what I did at that time, I was working for Baker's Milk finished at 5 o'clock and at 6 o'clock I started at the townhouse which is now something mid-city hotel or something washing up dishes and I came back at midnight I would put the um, heater on and I would get the dictionary and word by word translated 200 pages of English into Slovak. I read Mm. it and I thought, oh, so this is what it is. I learned it in Slovak and tried to translate it back to English. And through that, I have learned how to spell, how to spoke. My vocabulary grew, of course. And I went to uh, went to Launceston for exams, and uh, yeah, I passed ninety something. And I thought, yeah, by by then I was uh, I I could communicate. But prior to that, it didn't really worry me that I couldn't speak English because the people were so so helpful and so trying to to help me to talk that you know that it didn't I didn't feel threatened or I didn't feel lesser or I Mm -hmm. didn't and what is funny I never really was homesick I never was homesick I always was very grateful for this what we got and what you know how because I always think that the people make the place and the people made this place yeah and I guess having that would really help because a lot, I mean, the issue for some migrants is a feeling of isolation and not, yeah. not, not knowing anybody and not knowing how to connect. So mm. if you can get those people connect with you or you connect yeah. with people, yeah. it really makes your mm. whole life very different. And I have met many of our countrymen who were very unhappy and some of them even returned back to Czechoslovakia. I might go back a little bit to where you grew up. Yes. Because you said... You lived in Košice, yeah. but also uh, in a smaller place before that? Uh, it was during the war. You see, uh, Košice was part of Hungary when I was growing up. Okay. And my father was director of an insurance company which had the headquarters in Miškolc, which, is, which was in Hungary. But it is only one, one hour uh, train drive. 
and because it was one country, we were going backwards and forwards. But when uh, when the war started and uh, my father went back to, uh, he was uh, in the army, he was mobilized. Mom decided, my sister was two years old or one year old, decided to go back to her parents to Kosice and this is where we stayed. But because the headquarters of the Germans was just a stone throw away from where we lived, from that house, she she was worried. So my grandfather knew an old priest in a little village, which was Shomodi, and it's about an ad trying drive to it's uh, now it's still in Czechoslovakia or Slovakia and uh, we we moved into the parish and that was a beautiful part of my childhood because on the first day the children you know uh, automatically took me as a friend and I was a rarity because I came from a big city and it was a fantastic and very idyllic life because the war didn't reach that village just yet. Later on it was bombed, but uh, when we were there, it wasn't. You know, on the mornings uh, about four or five o'clock, the cows were, with cow, cow herd would go to the mine street with a bell and he was sort of uh, getting, herding all the cows from all the doors, uh, gates which were open and mm. took them up to the um, sort of hills for a die, and at six o'clock the whole procession started when he was bringing back the cows. <laughs> so it, every morning it just, you know, it, that, that's a memory which stays in my brain, and I still can hear, and I can almost smell those cows. And we were involved in home chores, like churning butter, like making popcorns, like taking uh, food to the people who were working in the fields, mainly women, because the men were in the war. So, yeah, I like it, but then we heard that the Germans were coming through the villages, and then some of the villages were burned and all that, so mom packed us up and she took us back to Kosice, and then we, we lived in the preparation for the war. We were running to the cellar, and to the end, we finished up living in the cellar with the families, six or eight families, there for six weeks. But, you know, when you are a child, and when you, when you have your mother there, and she holds your hands, you feel secure. You don't feel that, that uh, you know, Terrible things which were happening in the city. I, I later on find out that they were rounding up all the underground work, workers uh, and were uh, hanging them on the lampposts in the middle of the city. I didn't mm. know anything about it. We were living in the cellar. We were let out for one hour to run around in the fresh air and back to cellar, and someone was cooking the dinner, and someone was someone was telling us stories and someone was singing so you know it wasn't too bad really as a child I'm talking Mm. what was I six years seven years old so you mentioned that I mean the area where you lived had been part of Hungary and has Mm. probably changed around a bit so I'm I'm guessing that there was kind of a cultural mix of 
Slovaks and Hungarians. Yes, always has been because it was part of the big uh, monarchy and there were, at that time, part of Ukraine was also Hungary and part of Poland was also Hungary. So people moved around and uh, what was interesting, they kept their own culture and their own language. So we, we spoke the dialect of the village people as well, which was kind of, they they called them Rusniaks. It was a little bit of uh, Russian and a little bit of Slovak. When we were given back to Czechoslovakia, it was a little bit dramatic because we were forced not to speak Hungarian. And uh, I didn't experience it, but many people did, that there were fights on the streets, Mm. you know, to make the Hungarian speak Slovak. But we, we just, you know, I went to bed as a Hungarian and woke up as Slovak without making any steps and went to school, which was all Slovak. I had no idea what was going on. And it took me not all that much, really, but, you know, at least half a year to realize what what the language is. I didn't, I refused to read Slovak uh, books. Mom kept getting me Slovak books. I refused it. And I still spoke Hungarian. The language at home was Hungarian. But uh, then I made friends and, uh, you know, you blend in. And I'm really grateful for those two cultures because mm. they are very different from each other, language-wise and culture-wise and mentality-wise as well. Were there any Slovak traditions or Hungarian traditions as well that, that you you missed here or that you couldn't, um, I guess, experience here? Well, I missed the Christmas with white snow, that's for sure. I couldn't believe it that we are, you know, walking the street and it was middle of the summer and all the all the shop windows were displaying snow scenes <laughs> and I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I thought, why? Why don't they display the, what they really do in yeah. Christmas? Uh, so I, I missed that. I, uh, some of the food I missed. Uh, like bread, I used to buy uh, in delicatessen uh, uh, rye bread, which was coming from Melbourne once a week. So I, mm. I buy that. On Slovak traditions, I read about a strange Easter tradition in Slovakia. I don't know whether this is um, was a case in your area where the, the men throw water at the. Oh yes, mm-hmm. yes. Well, that that's it. Yeah, that's a sprinkling dye. It's not only Slovakia, Hungary as well. Okay. So it's a very, in our parts, the Czech, they have a different tradition, but the Slovaks and the Hungarians, they have the same tradition. What happens on the, on the Easter Monday, they go to people with the, and the villages are different, but in the city, the men and the boys buy a little perfume, the cheapest one possibly, and they go from one house to the other where they know that they are girls and they put a little bit of drop of that perfume on the head of the house wife and and the girls and for that they are invited in and all the leftovers from the Saturday evening feast they are hosted and they uh, sit around the table and have a glass of wine and by the night they all just luckily they don't drive and they all just wobble through the street 
So this is the tradition that's a sprinkling dye in villages. It's a little bit more dramatic. I was in one of the Slovak villages over one uh, of the Easters, and they chased the girls to the nearest creek, and they, you know, dip them in, and uh, it, it's all a tradition I, I grew up with. I didn't yeah. even think that it is something different. And uh, because I didn't like it, I didn't miss it here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is what they do. They, they sprinkle a little bit of perfume in the cities. In yep. the villages, it's the creek yep. or the well. And th- I know where it came from because Easter is beginning of the spring, so you have to water the plants so they grow, you know, and okay. they, uh, they consider the women the flower of the house. Here we, uh, people comment that we're very individualistic. Mm. And is Slovak, would you say that Slovakian culture is more of communal yeah, style culture? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what it was before the, before the war, but certainly the socialist regime encouraged the communal sort of socializing. I have been taken part in different social activities, but also in, in working camps. We have been taken out to build the, we, we had to, shift the railway lines from one place to the other because they were building the dam of Czechoslovakian youth in middle of Slovakia. Right. And we were put together to uh, working parties. And to me, the equality between boys and girls was taken. It, I didn't see boys different to me. It, mm-hmm. it was all equal. So we were two or three women in that working party and the rest of them were boys and we worked equally hard or we didn't work equally hard. We greeted each other, we cuddled each other, we, you know, but there was no, no difference in our part of the world. There was no difference between boys and girls. If you, uh, you know, eventually when you, when you grew up, you became aware of one or the other boy which you like more but other than that even in working places there was no difference when we were when we came to australia someone told me that women can't lift heavy subjects and all that it was in in cadbury's that you no no don't don't do that the man will put it away and i thought oh that's nice I didn't know about that, but there is uh, the equality was everywhere, and we were, you know, we were great mates. And I have to say that I went to school with a group of children, and from primary school to the end of the college, which was which was twelve years, I went more or less with the same kids, and we matriculated together. Even the teachers were kind of more friendly. There was no, Brian was saying that they were being hit hit by the sticks and everything. Mm-hmm. If they, there was no punishment. Yeah. No punishment at all. That was all ideology. And we were told that we are working for our country and for ourselves. So really, the wages, if you could cover yourself with it, lost importance, mm. at least uh, in our mind. You know, it wasn't the important thing why you worked. You worked for the whole. Yeah. This is how the first generation of socialists used. But I don't know what happened later when I grew up. 
Yeah. It deteriorated, but I know that this was a very good ideology and people were moral towards each other. People are fi- people, they all feel the same, they all love, they all cry, they all feel sad when something, they all love people around them and the family is important to them. And yeah. this is the common thread and the, the traditions and the customs come lighter and it just depends where you find yourself, which part of the world. Yeah. And this is where you create your sort of customs and traditions and whatever. Mm-hmm.